Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for giving us your word, the Bible. We pray now as we look at this very significant passage that you help us to understand exactly what it's saying and help us to apply it uh, to our own lives that we can be useful in your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If what Jesus says is true, then this life is very short compared to eternity. This life is very short, maximum, what, 100 years or so? Whereas eternity, by definition, goes on forever. And if what Jesus says is true, then the way we will spend eternity depends entirely on how we respond to him. If we really are sinners, as Jesus says, if we're actually going to face the judgment and anger of God, as Jesus says, then eternity without Jesus is looking very bad for us. But if Jesus really did die on the cross in our place, if Jesus actually rose again from the dead, if Jesus can genuinely save us from God's anger and judgment, well, then eternity with Jesus is looking brilliant. Do you believe what Jesus says about this stuff? Is that what you believe about life and eternity? Think carefully about it because there's going to be some implications. let's, Let's think through the logical implications. Life is short compared to eternity. Only Jesus can save us and give us a vastly improved eternity. And so therefore you would have to say that the salvation Jesus offers is immensely important. Wouldn't you? You'd have to. This is the eternity we're talking about. In fact, you'd have to say that the salvation Jesus offers is the most important thing that you could have. Jesus himself said something similar. Jesus said, this is from Matthew chapter 16, he said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? You can have everything there is, everything you've ever wanted, but if you miss out on heaven, it is a very bad deal. Or there were those parables Jesus told that we just read for us a moment ago from Matthew chapter 13. Uh, There's the one about the treasure hidden in the field. I'll put it on your outline there again. Uh, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven, that is, being with Jesus in heaven ultimately, It's like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Or similarly, Jesus told the parable about the precious pearl. He said there in your outline, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. What's Jesus saying? He's saying it's worth giving up everything to be part of his kingdom. And not in a sad way. No, no, Jesus says, if you just knew how brilliant it is to be a part of his kingdom, how valuable his kingdom is, you would, you would joyfully, just joyfully get rid of everything to be part of it. You'd be, you'd be thrilled to do it. If Christianity is true, then this must surely follow. To be saved... To be part of Jesus' eternal kingdom is the most important thing in life.
But it's not just important for you yourself. If Christianity is true, then surely this must also be true. To help other people be saved is the most important thing you can do for them. Do you like someone? Do you love someone? Do you want the best for them? The best for them is that you help them be saved. It's more important than fixing their computers or doing their accounts or sorting out their legal disputes or healing their diseases. That's all good stuff, but it's not going to last. It's just part of this life. Whereas if you help someone to trust Jesus and be saved from the anger of God on Judgment Day, you are doing something for them that lasts forever. It's more important. Must be. The the, the logic's inescapable, isn't it? If Jesus is real, if eternity is real, then the most important thing is to be saved and to help other people be saved. And friends, that's why this section, this little section of 1 Timothy is so important, so significant, because here in this section, Paul explains to Timothy how to save both himself and and his hearers. Paul explains to Timothy how to save both himself and his hearers. Now, as we've seen through this series, this book of 1 Timothy, it's a letter, a letter written by an early Christian leader, the Apostle Paul, to his protege, Timothy. Uh, Paul has left Timothy in the town, in the city of Ephesus, it's in modern-day Turkey, and he's left him to uh, oversee and and to look after some churches that are there in Ephesus. And and he's telling Timothy in this letter, it's uh, written in... uh, chapter 3 and verse 15, he's telling people how people should conduct themselves in church. Uh, Paul reminds Timothy that the church is God's family and he says church is where you should find the truth about Jesus. Uh, Jesus, who he says, can make us genuinely godly, genuinely pleasing to God. Uh, Last week we saw Paul uh, warning Timothy about some false teachers that were in the churches in Ephesus. Uh, They were telling the churches to avoid marriage and sex. Uh, They were telling the churches to avoid certain foods, probably unclean foods from from a Jewish perspective. As Marty told us last week, it's probably some kind of dualistic teaching, uh, maybe a mixture of dualistic Platonic philosophy with with Judaism uh, as well. Whatever was behind it, though, Paul is clear. uh, The false teachers in Ephesus have got it wrong. Godliness is not about abstention from the physical stuff of this world. It is no more godly or holy to be single. It is no more godly or holy to eat only vegetables or something like that. God created this world good. Things like food and marriage and sex, they are good gifts from God for Christians to enjoy with thanks to God. The godliness that God wants from us is to trust his son, Jesus. We're not saved by abstinence, by what we avoid. We're saved by Jesus. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, the last verse from last week, uh, Paul said to Timothy, you just got to keep teaching this to the church. You've got to keep reminding them. Uh, that is what will make you a good minister. The word literally there is deacon. It just means servant. He says that, that's what will make you, Timothy, a good servant of Jesus. It was there in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 6. Paul said, If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you've followed. So now, uh, now in this next section, Paul continues to talk to Timothy about how to deal with the false teachers. Uh, First thing he says is is what they're teaching is fairy tales. It's wrong and it's godless. It's not going to help you in your relationship with God. It's not going to help anyone else be saved. He says, Timothy, have nothing to do with that stuff. Instead, train yourself to be genuinely godly. 
uh, in context with the godliness that comes by grace through faith in Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. Have a look with me. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. It says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. It's the false teaching. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Now, this, this talk of, uh, of training, it leads Paul to make a comparison. Physical training, whether it's physical religious stuff like fasting or, or, or whatever, or, or, or whether it's exercise or sport, it's fine. It's, it's valuable. But the thing about physical training, it's only valuable for this life. You're not going to take your physical fitness with you into heaven. In heaven, we'll have transformed bodies. But true godliness, on the other hand, has value in eternity. The salvation that Jesus gives and our response of living for him, they last forever. Paul says this is true. You've got to believe it. Verse 8. For physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Uh, Paul talks more about what Timothy should teach, about how he should uh, encourage the people to to strive for true godliness. He says God offers salvation to everyone. Uh, In context, he's talking about both Jew and Gentile. God offers salvation to Jew and Gentile. What Jesus has done is enough to save both Jew and Gentile. But in the end... God saves those Jews and Gentiles who believe, those who trust him. God doesn't save those who abstain. God doesn't save the fit or the beautiful. God saves those who rely on Jesus. And so Timothy should teach people, strive, labor to trust Jesus and live for him. Verse 10. That is why we labor and strive. Because we've put our hope in the living God, who's the saviour of all people, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Timothy has to command and teach, but but it's not just about his words. No, no, Paul, in the next bit, he tells Timothy that he's got to set an example for the congregations. He's a relatively young man, Timothy. Generally speaking, he was older men who were looking after the churches in those days. But Timothy's a young man. Uh, Paul says, don't you worry about that. But j- just in the way that you speak, in the way you conduct yourself, be a model of godliness. Back up what you teach with how you behave, how you live. Verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you were young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Paul then talks to Timothy about the specific ministry that he was given. Uh, Timothy has to be a Bible teacher. Uh, that's what he was ordained to, uh, to be by the elders of his church. That's the ministry that was gifted to him, given to him. Uh, when the, the preacher spoke at his ordination service and, and spoke in God's name, prophesied, he, he, he set Timothy apart to be a Bible teacher and that is what Timothy should focus on. That's what he should work hard on, teaching the truth about Jesus from the Bible. Verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to preaching and to teaching, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. And then in the last verse that we're looking at, Paul summarizes it. He says, Timothy, you've got to watch your doctrine. A doctrine is what you believe and teach. 
You've got to watch your doctrine. You've got to believe and teach the truth about Jesus from the Bible. And he says, Timothy, you've got to back it up with your life. That, says Paul, is what will help people to put their trust in Jesus and be saved. Verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Well, can you see what's here in this section then? Uh, Timothy has to resist the false teaching about abstaining from various foods and, and sex. In, instead, he has to help the churches to trust Jesus. How does he do that? How's he going to do that? He's got he's to um, have right biblical, biblical doctrine about Jesus. He's got to teach right biblical doctrine about Jesus. And, and he's got to back it up with the way he lives. Set an example of genuine godliness for the churches so that they will respond rightly to Jesus. All right. All right, well, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves today. A couple of things to say. First, in our context, we need to reflect on what Paul says there in verse 8. I think we need to recognise this. Physical training is of some value, but godliness is more valuable because it's for this life and the next. There's nothing wrong with going to the gym. In my Bible study uh, this week, the first question was, tell us about your exercise regime. And none of them had one apart from eating dumplings. Uh, it was, uh, um, There's nothing wrong with going to the gym, I say to my Bible study group. There's nothing wrong with playing sport. Nothing wrong with watching your diet. Even fasting is okay. They're all of some value. It's certainly a better way to spend your time than watching TV or going on Facebook. But we don't to we don't want to get too hung up on physical training. Uh, fitness does not equate to godliness. Uh, being thin is not the same as being holy. Despite all the names of the ice creams, sin, temptation, all that kind of stuff, it's not sinful to eat ice cream. Uh, look, I know it sounds obvious, but, but just think about it for yourself. Has fitness become an idol for you? Is that how you spend your discretionary time? Do you spend more time looking in the mirror than looking in God's word? Do, do you worry more about your stomach size than about your sin? Or what about parents? What about with our children? It's good for kids to play sport. But what happens when there's a choice between sport and church? Or sport and youth group, or sport and serving in ministry, which has priority for you? Which, which should be given away? Physical training is fine, but more valuable is training in godliness. Okay, well, let's put aside physical training for a moment then. Let's think about training in godliness. Interesting expression, don't you reckon? Training in godliness. You reckon you could describe yourself as, as training, striving, laboring in godliness? Does your, does your spiritual disciplines look like an athlete training for an event? Uh, in her book, Disciplines of a Godly Woman, Barbara Hughes puts it nicely. Let me quote her at length. Uh, years ago, when I was in my early 30s and the busy, flabby mother of four, a friend and I made up our minds to get in shape and exercised a little physical discipline. We donned ratty old tennis shoes and weather-beaten T-shirts and shorts and set out to run around the block. 
To our dismay, we made it only as far as the first corner, nearly fainting with that much exertion. But we didn't give up. Every morning we tried again. The day we made it to the half-mile marker, we were so happy we celebrated with donuts. <laughs> That's my kind of exercise. Just skip the half-mile, I just go straight to the donut. <laughs> uh, but, but she goes on to say this. Have a listen to what she says. The Apostle Paul links this idea of necessary training or discipline with the spiritual life. He's calling for a spiritual workout. It's this spiritual workout that Paul deems so much more important than a morning jog around town. Paul isn't promising us a cushy, low-impact workout. Spiritual disciplines call for serious commitment and a no-pain, no-gain effort. Athletes in serious training willingly undergo hours of discipline and pain in order to meet the goal, to win the prize. Time is short and there remains so much to be done in us. And so, I love this last sentence. She says, and so we need to bring that same discipline to our flabby souls. Uh, Physical training is of some value. But godliness is more valuable. So, friends, have you got your priorities right here? Are you training hard in prayer? Or just kind of falling asleep? Is it no pain, no gain for you as you read the Bible day by day? Are you disciplined in turning away from sin, striving, laboring to to live in trust and obedience to our Saviour and King Jesus? Training in godliness, that was the first application. Godliness over physical training. Final application. Our final application brings us back to this idea of saving ourselves and our hearers. I mean, we we thought at the beginning that that is the most important thing in life, isn't it? To save ourselves and our hearers. This is eternally significant. So what does God's word teach us here in this very important passage? How can we save ourselves and our hearers? First, we need to realise it's just an expression. Of course, we don't actually save anybody, do we? We didn't die on the cross for the sins of the world. It's only Jesus who can save anyone. He, chapter 3, verse 16, is the mystery from which true godliness springs. But but having said all that, cleared all of that away, there, there are things for us to do here, aren't there? Two things in particular. Can you remember how Paul summarised it? We need to watch carefully our life and watch carefully our doctrine. Persevere in them, life and doctrine. Let's think about doctrine first. We need to watch our doctrine closely. So doctrine is is, is what you believe and what you teach. And friends, it matters. It matters what you believe. I mean, in our modern world, people seem to think if you just believe it hard enough, that'll make it true. Not true. It doesn't matter how hard you believe that if you jump off a building, you won't fall. You will fall. Your belief doesn't change anything. It is the content of your belief that needs to be correct. What you believe matters. There is true doctrine, doctrine that will save you eternally, and there is false doctrine, doctrine that will condemn you eternally. Uh, earlier this week, I was uh, reading an article about the, uh, the sermon at the royal wedding. I don't know if you heard the sermon. Was there, everybody watched the royal wedding? It was a nice time, wasn't it? Lots of, was I the only one watching it? Was I? Oh, dear, oh dear. Oh. Okay, we'll move on to the next point. No, no, no. Um, at least some of you, I'm sure, I'm sure heard the, uh, the, the, the sermon at the royal wedding. And uh, look, it was, 
in some ways nice enough and he talked about Jesus and said he believed Jesus walked on water and stuff like that. But those of you who are there, what was the big idea? What was the big idea? It's pretty hard to tell, I suspect, what the big idea was. But to the extent that I could discern any big idea from the royal sermon, I think it was this. He said, when we learned how to control fire, we changed the world. Now, if we can learn how to harness the power of love, we'll change the world. He did talk about Jesus. He said, if we can follow the example of the love of Jesus, we, can, we, by our love, can transform the world into a new heaven and earth. He said, and I quote, I think he was quoting Martin Luther King, we must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love, and when we discover that, we will be able to make of this old world a new world. That was the message. By our love, we can transform the world. Well, let me, let me uh, read to you from this article that I read about the sermon. It's by a, a Scotsman. happens to be in Sydney at the moment, actually. A Scotsman by the name of David Robertson. He writes this. He says, The preacher did not speak of Jesus' death in the way that the Bible does, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh, the gospel is not that we need to follow Christ as the most perfect example of love. It is rather that we need forgiveness for our sins and that we cannot love without Christ. And that is precisely the message that the world took from this sermon. You don't need God. All you need is love. And you're perfectly capable of love. Uh, the redemptive power of love in his message was not about the redemptive power of the cross, but rather the redemptive power of any love. Uh, equating my love for my wife, children, friends, society, self, with the redemptive love of Christ takes away from the power of the cross. We preach salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, through the cross of Christ. We don't preach salvation through our own redemptive love, copying that of Christ. I thought it was a good article, really thoughtful article, um, courteous in the way it was written, but I think a very, uh, very helpful critique. I tell you what, though, you should have heard some of the responses. I mean, people generally aren't nice to each other on the internet, but this was quite extraordinary. Um, and not just from outsiders, from people who claim to be Bible-believing Christians. H have a listen to this response from an evangelical Christian, self-proclaimed evangelical Christian uh, person who responded to the article. Rancid envy. David is full of testosterone and harshness is his middle name. The gospel was there. Your standards of expository perfection were not. Nitpicking. You are setting yourself up as the Pope of the Evangelical Church, moaning, carping, hurt and disappointed. Mean-spirited, tortuous drivel. I think you should repent and ask God to forgive you for being so mean-spirited and encouraging dissension. You wonder why I never go on the internet. <laughs> of course we don't want to be become mean-spirited or, or harshly critical and clearly it's very unfashionable to insist on right doctrine or to criticize uh, somebody who has wrong doctrine but friends we've got to get over it because doctrine matters doctrine matters if we don't watch our doctrine carefully we won't be saved and the sad fact is millions of people who listened to the sermon at the royal wedding heard a false gospel and if you believe and follow the doctrine of that royal wedding sermon, if you rely on your love rather than Jesus' love, you'll end up in hell. You won't be saved. It matters what you believe. It matters what you hear and teach. And that is why we need to be so careful. 
It's why we need to stick closely to the message of the saving grace of Jesus as it's revealed in the Bible. And it's why we need to work through the Bible, not plucking a bit out here or there, but just systematically work through it, book by book, page by page, seeing it in its context. And it's why you need to have your Bible open when you listen to some bloke spouting stuff from, from up the front here and make sure that what is being said from here is in fact what is being said in God's Word, the Bible. You've got to listen with discernment and with care, not to be mean spirit or critical or one-upmanship or anything like that. It doesn't make you superior to anybody else. It's just the true message about Jesus saves people while false messages about Jesus will condemn them. We need to watch our doctrine closely. But as we see here in 1 Timothy, it's not just our doctrine, is it? What we believe and teach is vital, but it's not enough. What else do we need to watch? Our lives. Paul says, watch your life and doctrine closely. The fact is, actions speak louder than words. We can say we trust Jesus, but as it says in the Bible, in the book of James, if our faith is not backed up by our deeds, it is a dead faith. If our faith makes no difference to our speech, to our conduct, to our love, to our purity, it is not a genuine faith. A faith like that, the Bible says, will not save us. And a faith like that won't save anyone anyone around us either. Uh, We can talk about Jesus to our friends or our workmates or our children until we're blue in the face, but if if our life shows that we're blasé about Jesus or if our life shows that we prefer the things of this world to Jesus or if our life shows that we don't take the lordship of Jesus seriously and we get away with sin where we can, our actions are going to undermine our words. If our lives don't match our words, our words will have no effect. A while ago I met with a young man, his friend at university, um, convinced him to come and meet with me. This, this, uh, this young man was, uh, was raised in a church, his parents are Christians, uh, but he doesn't go to church anymore and uh, he made clear to me that he was just meeting with me to please his friend. He has no interest in church or even in Jesus. And I said, why? What, what, what's happened to you? And he said that the biggest factor for me was the hypocrisy of my parents, he said. They look great on the outside. They say all the right things. Everyone thinks they're so holy. They don't see them at home. They don't know what they're really like. Now, of course, none of us are perfect. As Christians or as parents, don't ask my children what I'm like at home, please. Um, and, And there are many Christian parents who do back up what they say with how they live, but whose children still give up on Jesus. Uh, We can't guarantee or control the salvation of of anyone, of our children or anyone else. But you get the point, don't you? And can you see what's at stake? The most important thing you can do for the people you know and love is help them be saved. And if your life does not match up with what you say, your words will have no effect. You and your hearers will not be saved. Friends, life is short compared to eternity. Only Jesus can save us eternally. Nothing is more important than saving ourselves and our hearers. So friends, what do we have to do? Watch our lives and our doctrine carefully. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that there is a true message about Jesus who has lived and died and risen again from the dead. We thank you that this message 
can help us to put our trust in Jesus. And we thank you that Jesus saves those who trust in him. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be people who watch our lives and our doctrine carefully so that we do trust Jesus and do rightly commend him to others so that they may trust him as well, that we and our hearers may be saved. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.